You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Chapter 4, The Age of Marketing. Case 3, John Brown and BP. On the 1st of May 2007, John Brown resigned as CEO of BP after 41 years with the company and 12 years at its helm. According to BBC business editor Robert Peston, it was a sad end to what was, until recently, a distinguished career. The reason for his resignation a year ahead of plan was the imminent publication by a British tabloid of details about his homosexuality and the fact that he lied to the courts about his relationship. That something so private, which should have been a mere footnote in Brown's biography, prematurely ended his career, is a sad indictment of the bigoted times we still live in. Be that as it may, John Brown's story is interesting not because of his personal life, but rather his very public life during a time of great change and challenge at BP. How Brown came to be at BP in the first place was really thanks to his father, who worked for Anglo-Persian Oil, which later became British Petroleum. While Brown was studying physics at Cambridge University, and at the suggestion of his father, he began as an apprentice with BP in 1966. Needless to say, he never left, working his way up the ranks and holding various posts such as Group Treasurer of BP Finance International, Chief Financial Officer of BP America, CEO of Standard Oil Production Company, and finally Group CEO in 1995. His takeover date is important because it was the same year that Shell was being heavily criticised for its proposed sinking of the Brent Spa oil platform in the North Atlantic, as well as its alleged complicity with the Nigerian government in the execution of human rights activist Ken Sarawiwa. Brown would have taken special note of former Shell UK chairman's warning that the days when companies were judged solely in terms of economic performance and wealth creation have disappeared. For us, he said, Brent Spa was the key turning point. It was a wake-up call, not only to Shell, but to the entire oil and gas industry and to industry in general. Indeed, Brown would have been all too aware of a few skeletons in BP's own closet at the time, most notably the fact that between 1993 and 1995, BP's contractor, Doyon Drilling, was engaged in illegally dumping hazardous wastes on Endicott Island in Alaska, injecting it down the outer rim of the oil wells. When BP learned of the practice and failed to report it to the authorities, it contravened the so-called U.S. Superfund legislation. After a few years of legal wrangling, in 1999, BP agreed to a settlement of $22 million, which included a criminal fine of 500000 which was the maximum, and $6.5 million in civil penalties and BP's establishment of a $15 million environmental management system at all BP's facilities in the U.S. and Gulf of Mexico that were engaged in oil exploration, drilling, or production. Another skeleton was the allegations in 1996 of complicity of human rights abuses in Colombia. It was a seminal lesson for Brown, as he later recalled, saying, 
BP entered that country seeking a tantalizing prize of rich resources amidst violent insurrection, a polarized society, and dark undercurrents in politics. Clearly, security was a challenge, but we assumed that we had the answer, a thick barbed wire fence with security personnel, and if necessary, the help of the Colombian army. What we hadn't realized was that a fence keeps you in as well as others out. BP's presence, in particular the payment of an unfortunately named dollar-per-barrel war tax, was viewed as giving tacit support to a brutal military regime in which human rights were being trampled underfoot. For the first time I realized that the company's brand, its reputation, and ultimately its value had been laid on the line because of our failure to fully appreciate our human rights responsibilities. Brown also inherited BP's membership of the Global Climate Coalition, a powerful lobby group created in 1989, shortly after the UN created the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The Global Climate Coalition actively attempted to undermine emerging climate science and to derail international policy development. To his credit, Brown withdrew BP's membership in 1997. In a groundbreaking speech at Stanford University, he stated that the time to consider the policy dimensions of climate change is not when the link between greenhouse gases and climate change is conclusively proven, but when the possibility cannot be discounted and is taken seriously by the society of which we are a part. We in BP have reached that point. As Petroleum Economist, the publication put it, BP had left the church. Within the space of a few years, step by step, Brown began to transform the image of BP. One of the great watershed moments was in 1998, when Brown threw down the gauntlet to BP and to the oil industry, promising to cut emissions from its own operations by 10% from 1990 levels by 2010, which was more than the average Kyoto Protocol country targets and certainly more than any other major oil company had committed to until that time. In fact, they achieved the target four years later, eight years ahead of the target, and at no net cost to the company. Brown seemed to be doing and saying everything right, and was slowly but surely becoming the darling of environmentalists that were desperate for signs of reform among the big brands. One crucial tool was public reporting. BP, having merged with Amoco at the end of 1998, issued their first environmental and social report in 1999. In his CEO statement, Brown made encouraging statements like, the environment is the primary challenge facing the industry, and there is no trade-off between our commercial and financial performance and our standards of care. To reassure the market analysts, he promised, and I quote, to apply to our performance in these areas with the same rigour we apply to the delivery and reporting of our financial performance, measuring, setting targets as part of an overall performance contract, and reporting openly on how we've done, using independent external auditing and verification processes where possible. I can, to a certain extent, attest to those words as not being just flowery statements, as KPMG had been working with BP in helping to design an internal carbon emissions trading scheme, a progressive step for any company, let alone an oil major. By 2000, Brown felt the company had earned enough public kudos 
to risk a major rebranding of BP. The company reportedly spent $7 million in researching the new Beyond Petroleum Helios brand and $25 million on a campaign to support the brand change. When Brown justified the exercise by saying, it's all about increasing sales, increasing margins, and reducing costs at retail sites, perhaps more people should have been tempered in their expectations. Certainly Greenpeace wasn't duped, concluding at the time that this is a triumph of style over substance. BP spent more on their logo this year than they did on renewable energy last year. To make their point explicit, Greenpeace ran a counter-campaign using the same design as the BP adverts, but adding the following text. We also harness greenwash. Seen our ads on TV and in the press, impressed that we finally got the message on climate change? Think again. We're also running a big advertising campaign in the US. Both versions have the same graphics, the same nifty tune, the same style. But whereas the Brits are told to work out your carbon footprint, it's a start. The American consumer is told, we're investing $15 billion in finding new oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a start. The author of The Tyranny of Oil is similarly sceptical, claiming that at its peak BP was spending 4% of its total capital and exploratory budget on renewable energy, and that this has since declined, despite Brown's announcement in 2005 of BP's plans to double investment in alternative and renewable energies. Brown said it was to create a new low-carbon power business with the growth potential to deliver revenues of around $6 billion a year within the decade. Skeptics notwithstanding, Brown had earned his new title as the Sun King, and his reputation was not only being earned with green stripes. BP was also one of the first companies to declare their support for the Publish What You Pay campaign. However, after BP decided unilaterally to publish the value of taxes paid to the Angolan government, the state-owned oil partner, Sonangol, accused the company of breaking confidentiality clauses in its agreements and threatened to terminate its contracts. As a result, under advice from Brown, the UK's Blair government launched the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative in 2002 at the World Summit for Sustainable Development in Johannesburg. This was to tackle the so-called resource curse and to ensure the verification and full publication of company payments and government revenues from oil, gas and mining. Success or failure is all about timing. If Brown had been a politician and had retired in 2003 after two four-year terms of office, he may still have been covered in glory, with his son King Crown still firmly in place. After all, he had turned BP into an oil major, perhaps even a competitor for ExxonMobil, by creating a lean, mean, green machine. Instead, he hung on to power long enough to face the consequences of his own legacy of cost-cutting and rhetoric. As a result, between 2004 and 2007, the proverbial chickens came home to roost. Brown was left tarred and feathered. While Brown had clearly prioritised environmental issues from the start, he had reason to be less nervous about health and safety risks. The last really serious BP incident had been in 1965, when Britain's first offshore oil rig, the Sea Gem, had capsized, killing 13 crew members. But that complacency, if indeed it existed, 
all changed on the 23rd of March 2005, when an explosion and fire at BP's Texas City refinery killed 15 workers and injured more than 170 others. An investigation into the accident by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration ultimately found over 300 safety violations and fined BP $21 million, the largest fine in the institution's history at the time. The story did not end there. In 2007, in a separate settlement related to the explosion, BP pleaded guilty to a violation of the Federal Clean Air Act and agreed to pay a $50 million fine and to make safety upgrades to the plant. Complying with the terms of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration settlement was also a condition of the Justice Department agreement. Blast victims challenged the plea deal arguing that the fine was trivial in light of BP's $22 billion profits in 2006. Two years later, in 2009, a fine was imposed of $80 million, claiming that the company had not completed all the safety upgrades required under the agreement and alleging 439 new willful safety violations. Predictably, BP announced its contestation of the fine. A few months after the Texas explosion, BP's Thunderhorse semi-submersible oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico almost became fully submersible after Hurricane Dennis hit. The rig had been evacuated before the storm, so no one was injured, and when the platform was restabilized, no serious damage had been incurred. However, during repairs, it was discovered by chance that the underwater manifold was severely cracked due to poor welding pipes. While this was not the cause of the platform's instability, the rig's design engineer admitted that it could have caused a catastrophic oil spill. In March 2006, BP was not so lucky, when it was found to be criminally liable for a corroded pipe on Alaska's north slope that leaked 200,000 gallons of oil. In August the same year, another leak appeared, and the entire Prudhoe Bay operation had to be shut down. During the investigation, a federal grand jury subpoenaed records from a Seattle engineering firm that had been hired by Alaska to evaluate BP's pipeline maintenance record and uncovered a draft report that was highly critical of BP but somehow turned into a final report that was largely complimentary. Member of Congress, Republican Jay Inslee, concluded that BP had made a willful, conscious decision to quash that information from the public. By the time of Brown's undignified exit into the wings of BP history in 2007, he was widely criticised for the dual crimes of greenwashing and instilling a cost-cutting culture that was the root cause of BP's spate of safety and environmental incidents. Even the new CEO... Tony Haywood, a year before taking over, admitted that BP had a management style that had made a virtue of doing more for less. In an ironic twist of fate, in June 2010, Brown was appointed efficiency Tsar by the new British coalition government and tasked with finding £6.2 billion, or $9.9 billion, worth in spending cuts. Less than a month later, one of the first casualties was the government's Sustainable Development Commission, shut down on the same day that the agency released its annual report, showing tens of millions of pounds worth of saving from cutting fuel, water, waste, 
and other resources as a result of its actions in government. After taking over, Hayward quickly showed that he was not one for green rhetoric. Less than six months into the job, he announced BP's plans to invest nearly £1.5 billion, or $2.3 billion, to extract oil from the Canadian wilderness, the so-called Alberta tar sands, an action which earned it a Guardian newspaper headline as the biggest environmental crime in history. Greenpeace claims that it takes about 29 kilograms of carbon dioxide to produce a barrel of oil conventionally, but as much as 125 kilograms for tar sands oil. It also believes the production threatens a vast forest wilderness, greater than the size of England and Wales, which forms part of one of the world's biggest carbon sinks. Two years later, Hayward's apparent back-to-petroleum strategy gained momentum when BP announced that it had shut down its alternative energy headquarters in London, accepted the resignation of its clean energy bus, and imposed cuts in the alternative energy budget from $1.4 billion, or £850 million, in 2008 to between $500 million and $1 billion in 2009. Bizarrely, Hayward used this occasion to stress that BP remained as committed as ever to exploring new energy sources. No wonder grist journalist Joseph Rom responded with an incredulous rant. Seriously, they gut the program and claim it is reinforcement of their commitment. Perhaps BP stands for Beyond Prevarication or Beyond Pinocchio. Today all this history... The story of Brown, of Hayward and of BP seems like a dress rehearsal for the main event. I'm referring, of course, to the catastrophic 2010 Gulf of Mexico oil spill. On the 20th of April, an explosion and fire on the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig killed 11 workers and injured 17 others. The rig sank and the incident caused the wellhead on the ocean floor to start gushing oil. After numerous failed attempts... The oil flow was stopped for the first time with a temporary cap, 87 days and 184 million gallons, and one CEO later. Time will tell whether this temporary fix and the proposed permanent solution in the form of relief wells will prove conclusive. Understandably, at the time of writing, estimates of the scale and consequences of the disaster still vary considerably and will continue to change over time. However, on the 17th of July, the Guardian newspaper gathered the following numbers from the Associated Press and Friends of the Earth. $30 billion in cost to BP, including a $20 billion damages fund. 444 sea turtles and 1,387 birds found dead. 572 miles of shoreline oiled. 2,700 square miles of visible slick. 83,927 square miles closed to fishing. 1.82 million gallons of dispersant chemicals applied. And $336 million market value of the spilled oil. One number that is hard to forget is that BP's share price lost 50% of its value in 50 days. Not surprisingly, speculation was rife about whether the company would survive intact or whether it would be taken over, merged or disaggregated. The lawsuits also started coming thick and fast. By 16th of June, it faced more than 225 lawsuits in 11 US states. 
According to Bloomberg, investors in three states, including Louisiana and Alaska, have sued BP's board of directors for allegedly causing more than $50 billion in shareholder losses by failing to implement safety policies that would have prevented the spill. In a separate class action lawsuit in Florida, the company is accused of a pattern of criminal acts, including fraud. On the 16th of July, BP announced that it had already paid $201 million to more than 32,000 claimants, including fishermen who have received $32 million and shrimpers who have received $18 million. In addition, about $77 million has been paid for loss of income to a variety of occupations, including deckhands and employees of seafood processing plants and other businesses. The breaking news as I write this chapter is that BP admitted to using Photoshop to exaggerate oil spill command center activity. The oil spill has become a story that will run and run, like a snowball changing shape, gathering weight and increasing destruction as it goes. Many questions for now remain unanswered. Will BP recover its reputation? Will the sacrifice of Hayward be enough to quench the bloodlust of critics? Will this be chalked up as the worst environmental disaster in history? Will we look back on the Macondo blowout as the inadvertent tipping point that ushers in a new low-carbon future? Students, professors and CSR wonks will study this case for years to come. But for the purposes of this book and this chapter... It is simply the latest drama in the BP saga, the story of a corporate leader in the age of management that managed to become a poster for the age of marketing.